Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, the host of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. And this is my new show, Tenfold More Wicked Presents Wicked Words. I've interviewed writers about their best true crime stories, like Brian Burrow, who tells me about going to high school with a serial killer. Dude, if you're lying about this, you're lying about everything. Well, it's manipulation. Yeah. Tenfold More Wicked Presents Wicked Words is now available on Exactly Right with new episodes every Monday. Follow Tenfold More on Twitter and Tenfold More Wicked on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe now and find Wicked Words on the Tenfold More Wicked feed on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Southern Fried True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners, and there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. I've told you before about my fascination with the word murderess. As Margaret Atwood wrote, murderess is a strong word to have attached to you. It has a different undertone than murderer. To call someone a murderer is like an act of judgment. That word brings feelings of fear, anger, and disgust. But murderess tends to evoke a sensual, mysterious attribute to the woman in question which is probably why you rarely see it used in modern news reports about women who kill. We strive to make the act of murder gender neutral or equal to men, but it's not really. Men commit violent crimes more than three times as often as women. Maybe that's why we do sometimes tend to sexualize the term used for women. Femme fatale, black widow, murderess. It feels like an old-timey word, and I suppose it is. And yet Google it. We still love to use it in stories about murderous women. Today's case is more than 60 years old, at a time when the word murderess would have been screamed in the headlines. She was called the Alabama Axe Murderess. That's got a definite ring to it. Although in modern true crime, you may know this case as the Torso Murders. But if there ever was a case where the term murderess fits, it's this one. Viola Hyatt is mysterious. She seems cold, reticent, and yet also strangely mirthful, and she took her secrets to her grave. Welcome to episode 131, The Alabama Axe Murderess. On June 28, 1959, at around 1.30 p.m. on a blazing hot Alabama day, a local farmer was out picking berries near an abandoned house in Etowah County. 
It was about a hundred yards off of U.S. Highway 11 in northeastern Alabama. When he walked into the driveway, he stumbled onto a horrific scene. A male torso was lying in the driveway, like it had been thrown there. If you were going to hide a body, this abandoned house was a good place. It could barely be seen by passing drivers, and was once a headquarters for bootleggers and gamblers. It had been padlocked and abandoned for several years. Police soon swarmed the scene, and the press got a hold of the story almost immediately. The victim was referred to by Mr. X by detectives and the press. The police worked closely with local newspapers from the very start. Mr. X still had a head, although his face was mutilated and his arms and legs were cut off. The torso was clad in tattered men's undergarments, an undershort and undershirt is what the detective wrote in his notes. So like boxers and a tank top, or maybe the typical white t-shirt. There was no blood at the scene and no sign of a struggle, so police believed the man had been killed somewhere else and then dumped in this driveway. And there were no obvious suspects. U.S. Highway 11 connected Louisiana to New Jersey, so the killer could be anywhere. Police said it was one of the most crude and brutal murders in Etowah County. They theorized the killer drove into the driveway, then dumped the torso in a hurry and sped off because around 15 feet from the torso was a 90-foot-deep well. There was also a heavy underbrush, which easily could have hidden the dismembered corpse. So maybe the killer only saw the abandoned house and wasn't really familiar with it. It was just a quick body dump. Or maybe the killer wanted the body to be found. State toxicologist Robert Johnson performed the autopsy on the torso. He determined the man had been dead for around 18 hours when his body was found and he also believed the body had been dumped a few hours before it was found. The man had been shot and killed with a shotgun at close range, then was beaten in the face and back of the head with a blunt instrument. The legs and arms were cut at the trunk with a knife, and then a heavy sharp instrument, probably an axe or meat cleaver, was used to hack through the bones. Johnson also said it looked like a professional did it. The victim was a white man. He was clean-shaven and had recently gotten a haircut. He was between 40 and 50 years old, around 5'8", and about 170 pounds. He had black hair that was turning gray, and his face had rounded features. He was believed to be short and stocky. On June 29th, Circuit Court Solicitor Charles Wright told the Selma Times Journal, quote, I've never seen anything like it around here. About all we know right now is whoever dumped him here certainly knew the house was abandoned. Wright also said, aside from the shotgun blast, the head was pretty well chopped up, probably with an axe. He added, if I had to take a horseback guess at this time, I'd say it was some sort of revenge killing. The arms and legs were cut off simply to prevent identification. Wright told the press that the investigators had several leads, but hadn't yet found any concrete clues. He also said investigators were having a difficult time identifying the body because the face was so brutally mutilated and they hadn't found his arms or legs yet. I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At around noon the next day, another torso was found, this time 10 miles away in St. Clair County. Mrs. Jack Partlow and her three children pulled into the driveway of their rental house and saw the torso in the driveway. This time, it was around 20 yards from U.S. Highway 11. About a month before, their tenants had moved out. The curtains and blinds were still in the windows. The Partlows were planning to make some repairs on the house before they put it up for rent again. And the Partlows' own home was only about 200 yards away. This victim became known as Mr. Y. His torso was completely nude except for a scrap of cloth that was hanging around his neck. Now that toxicologist Johnson had both torsos, he tried to find similarities. He found that both men had eaten about an hour before they were killed, and they had most likely eaten together. Their stomach contents had some of the same food. Johnson also found that both men were killed around the same time, in the late afternoon or early evening of June 27th. One difference is that Mr. Y was shot on the left side of his face, and not full in the face like Mr. X. Johnson theorized that it was possible Mr. Y was shot second and had time to turn away before the shot hit him. Mr. X's talk screen showed he had a level 0.14% alcohol in his system. 0.15 is the level of intoxication. Mr. Y's body, found just a day later, was already too decomposed to screen for alcohol. There were no scars or marks that could help identify the bodies and no one with the general description of the two men had been reported missing in the area. This made police think the murders were, quote, a family affair, or that someone who knew something wasn't coming forward. The police would spend the next three weeks trying to identify the torsos. Using what they knew so far, they had a few theories. They thought the victims knew each other and were possibly related. Remember, this was before DNA. They also believed that they were killed and dismembered by the same person and in the same place. They believed the victim knew their killer and that the murderer was a local man. They didn't think a tourist would carry an axe or shotgun with them, and because the murderer was familiar enough with the area to know where to dump the torsos. Police also thought the killer may have been afraid of the victims for some reason. The way the bodies had been mutilated might have, quote, stemmed from a past incident with the men for which he sought revenge. They thought it was possible the killer wanted the torsos to be found, but also that he dismembered the bodies so they couldn't be associated with each other. Both victims had new fresh haircuts, fresh shaves, and had probably just finished bathing and then eating, further solidifying the theory that they knew each other and probably knew their killer. Maybe the men were killed during a fight, possibly connected to bootlegging in dry counties. And then there was the always terrifying theory that there was a madman living among them who got pleasure out of dismembering bodies. Other than that, they had a general idea of how the men looked, which would soon help with getting their descriptions out to the public. By June 30th, authorities were theorizing that the men had been victims of gangland slayings and then dumped as the killers drove along U.S. Highway 11. And of course, locals who lived along U.S. Highway 11 were understandably upset. People were trying not to travel at night, and houses were kept locked at all times. These tiny communities were like Mayberry. Everyone knew each other, and no one locked their doors at night. Now they were terrified. 
Most locals were whispering about a madman stalking their homes. At the end of June, around 100 officials from all counties that US-11 ran through searched the sides of the highway for arms and legs. They also searched all wooded areas, empty houses, creeks, and lakes. They searched for seven hours that first day, but found nothing. The searches would continue over the next three weeks. On July 1st, it was announced that Gadsden artist John King had been asked to put together drawings that reproduced the victim's features as closely as possible. The sketches were published in newspapers and included these descriptions. Mr. Y. Unknown white male, 5 feet, 8 inches tall, age 45 to 60, weight 170 to 180 pounds, eyes dark brown, thick black graying hair, thick full lips, heavy jowls, full chin, double, muscular build would suggest wrestler or outside type man with rough features, possibly of Greek descent, clean-shaven, fresh haircut, eight meal consisting of tomatoes, beef, onions, French dressing, approximately one hour prior to death. Mr. X, unknown white male, 5 feet 10 inches to 6 feet tall, age 50 to 60 years, weight 170 to 180 pounds, eyes brown, thick graying black hair, thick full lips, clean-shaven, fresh haircut, soft features, slightly cauliflower ear, white-filling upper left tooth, appeared to be inside type of man of Greek descent, dressed in shorts and undershirt, eight mil of dried beans, tomatoes, onions, coffee with cream, approximately one hour prior to death. On July 2nd, it was announced that investigators had found the manufacturer of the underwear worn by Mr. X. They had been made by the DeKalb Garment Company in Alexander City, Alabama. The owner told police that the undershorts were the cheapest ones he made. They were probably sold for 49 or 50 cents. He also said he thought the shorts were a fairly new pair. He didn't think they'd ever been washed. The shorts had been shipped all over the nation, including multiple Alabama counties. Police found that the undershorts were sold in seven towns near where the bodies were found, which led them to believe that Mr. X was a resident of Northeast Alabama. At this point in the investigation, over 100 leads had been investigated, but nothing panned out. Authorities kept speaking to the press, reminding people to call if they knew of anyone who matched the victim's descriptions. On July 9th, Governor John Patterson offered a $1,000 reward. On that same day, authorities announced that they were going to comb through Camp Siebert's 35,000 acres looking for clues. Spread over Etowah and St. Clair counties, Camp Siebert was a U.S. Army chemical weapons training facility during the World War II era. It was acquired by the Army in 1942. They weren't acting on a tip. They were searching because, according to the Huntsville Times, the camp was, quote, an isolated, thinly populated area between Gadsden and Asheville. Part of the area is near the abandoned shack where the first torso was found. By July 13th, police announced that they knew the following which led them to believe that the murders were committed in a rural, secluded area. A shotgun and an axe were the weapons used. These are items a farmer or rural resident would own. And also, leaves and other residue were found embedded in the stumps of the torsos. This meant that the dismemberment happened outdoors. There would have been a huge mess after the dismemberment. This meant the killer would have let the blood soak into the ground or would have washed it away in a stream. Police also said they believed that lifting the 100-plus-pound torsos was too much for one person to handle. 
So now they were thinking, if not two killers, that the killer at least had an accomplice. On July 15th, Highway Patrolman Harry Sims was stopped on the side of a road when a man came up to him and said he heard that a man who worked as a welder at the Aniston Ordnance Depot was missing. The man said he thought this man lived near Alexandria. Sims thought there was a possibility this missing man could be one of the torsos. He called a friend of his in Alexandria and asked if he'd heard any rumors. The friend hadn't heard anything, but he knew a supervisor at the depot. So he reached out to the supervisor, who told him that a man named Lee Harper had been on a two-week vacation, but hadn't returned for work as scheduled on July 13th. Instead, a woman called and requested that Lee's vacation be extended, which was approved by management. The supervisor said that Lee lived in a trailer somewhere in the Nance Creek, White Plains area. At around 10 p.m. that night, over coffee, Harry Sims asked fellow patrolman Herman Chapman to help him find the trailer. They started driving around looking at around midnight, which was when their shift ended. They weren't officially on the case, even though all law enforcement were, of course, on alert. By 1 a.m., the patrolman had been unable to find Lee's place, so they flagged down a motorist, who said he actually knew Lee. Sims asked if Lee lived alone, and the motorist said that Lee lived with his brother Emmett. Then he asked the man when he last saw the brothers, and the motorist said two or three weeks ago. The anonymous man led the officers to a farm in the Rabbit Town community in Calhoun County, part of the small town of White Plains. Rabbit Town is a tiny community within a tiny town. White Plains only has around 800 residents. White Plains is 15 miles northeast of Anniston, and contemporary journalist Don Brown described White Plains as having three stores with a few houses in 1959. He said it would be light, then suddenly dark, no lights. And these patrolmen were coming up on a farm in the dead of night. A farm that a lead detective would later call eerie weird. It was owned by an elderly man named Martin Hyatt. 74-year-old Hyatt lived there with his second wife, Jessie, who was 12 years younger than him, and his 30-year-old daughter from his first marriage, named Viola. The officers walked around back of the property and found the Harper Brothers' trailer. They saw bloodstains around the trailer, as well as a shotgun blast to the door. Wood cement had been used to patch the door in order to conceal the shotgun blast. The officers called for backup at around 2 a.m. When investigators arrived, they knocked on the door of the farmhouse and arose the Hyatt family. The Hyatts all said the brothers were on vacation in the Andalusia area. Almost four hours away, Andalusia is in the southernmost central part of Alabama. But investigators sent officers there, scrambling, breaking speed limits, and they learned that the brothers, who were known to visit the area, hadn't been there since December. And even more investigators were called to the farm to start searching for evidence. It's understandable why people believed the brothers were on vacation this whole time. Owner of Owen's Cafe, Lily Owen, told the Birmingham News they'd planned to go off on vacation, so nobody thought too much about them being gone. A neighbor of the Hyatts, Mr. R.L. Cobb, told the Birmingham News those brothers never came around nobody. That's why we didn't miss them. If Highway Patrolman Harry Sims hadn't received the tip about the missing welder, head investigators snidely told the press, that they still most likely would have solved the case on July 17th or right after anyway. I can't help but notice they kind of stole Harry's thunder. They probably didn't appreciate that an off-duty patrolman stole their thunder 
by not only identifying the torsos, but finding the trailer. The governor later released a statement thanking the two patrolmen without naming them, and then named all the sheriffs from every county involved and the prosecutor. In the same paper, in another column, the Alabama Journal, the writer did name Harry Sims, saying, quote, The balding Sims had been a member of the Highway Patrol for 12 years. Old newspapers crack me up with their subtle cattiness. I've not seen any other investigator described by their appearance in this case. In fact, the only other person journalists took shots at was Viola Hyatt. She was a heavier set woman, and they never failed to point that out. But anyway, they probably would have eventually found the brothers' identities. Birmingham news artist Charles Brooks had been hired to draw new sketches of the victims. They were set to be released July 17th. The new sketches so closely resembled the Harper brothers that police were convinced someone would have immediately identified them. I'll have the sketches as well as other photos of the brothers on all of my social media. In addition to the sketches, toxicologist Johnson was also able to determine through laboratory techniques the name Lee HA-ER was stenciled on the scrap of cloth found on Mr. Y's neck. Johnson told police he thought Mr. Y's name was Lee Harper. I'm going to pause now to hear a word from today's sponsors. Wouldn't it be great if you could stop every criminal in their tracks? While you might not be able to stop every criminal, what if you could deter them? That's what Simply Safe's new wireless outdoor security camera does. It's wireless, so you can install it anywhere, extending Simply Safe's perimeter of defense from your windows and doors to the far corners of your property. Simply Safe, the system that U.S. News and World Report names best home security system of 2021, just got even better. This brand new outdoor security camera is engineered with all the advanced tech to help keep you and your family safe. It has an ultra-wide 140-degree field of view, so you can keep watch over your entire yard. It has 1080p HD resolution with an 8x zoom. That means you can zoom in and clearly see things like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. And it has an easy-to-remove, rechargeable battery, so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all. And it integrates with your Simply Safe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door, window, and room are protected. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/southernfried. Simply Safe is offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash southernfried. I'm super close with my dad's first cousin, Lynn. She's like a bonus aunt, and I have been blessed with some incredible aunts. We talk a lot, and even though our relationship goes back my entire life, I would love to learn more about her life. That's why I gave her the gift of StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps a loved one share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. Every week, StoryWorth emails a different story prompt. Questions you might not think to ask, like, what's a small decision you made that ended up having a big impact on your life? StoryWorth is a meaningful way to record your loved one's stories in their own words. I've learned a lot about Lynn's amazing time at Vanderbilt University and how she never misses alumni events or games. It's so cool that Vandy is still such a big part of her life. After one year, 
StoryWorth compiles all these cherished memories into a beautiful keepsake book, complete with photos, that's shipped for free. I've been gifting StoryWorth to relatives and friends for a couple of years now, and I have been able to learn so much about my loved ones. Funny stories, sweet stories, things I don't want to forget. StoryWorth is a meaningful gift you and your family can treasure forever. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash southernfried. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash southernfried for $10 off. On July 16th, dozens of investigators searched the farm. The Hyatt family was cordial and stuck to the story about the brothers being on vacation for most of the day. While investigators went over the property, Viola Hyatt, reporter Don Brown said, was really shook up. He noted that her father just sat and watched and fed his chickens. Several reports said that Martin Hyatt just stayed passively on his porch as his farm was searched. Investigators brought punching rods to probe for arms and legs all around the farm. The Hyatt farmhouse was unpainted with a wood frame and a red chimney. It had a long porch with a swing that Martin Hyatt sat in and a rocking chair that Mrs. Jessie Hyatt sat in. A reporter noted Mr. Hyatt's wide-brim hat and unkempt overalls. Mr. Hyatt sat stoically, watching the search from his porch swing all day. Mrs. Hyatt reportedly took a nap and then was seen out feeding the chickens before she went in the barn and milked the cow, apparently carrying on with her chores despite the chaos on the farm that day. There was little grass on the 40 acres. It was mostly just hard clay and four huge trees. There was a wide driveway with a crude wooden gate and fence posts handmade from tree limbs. Don Arnold wrote in his notes, quote, The whole area gives feelings of primitiveness and backwardness. There are old shacks, dirt, things scattered everywhere, generally a mess, he continued. While investigators were searching the property, the media asked Violet's dad if he thought his daughter killed the brothers. Martin Hyatt told the media, quote, I don't believe she did it. She might have done it. I don't know. Martin Hyatt said he and his wife went to bed around 9 p.m. on the night of the murders. They didn't hear any gunshots, and they never saw anything unusual in the next three weeks. In the afternoon, Viola started to break under interrogation and gave a different story. A few times, she appeared to be at her breaking point, but then she'd get a hold of herself and say, I don't know nothing. I'm scared. At around 7.30 p.m., Viola, her father, and her stepmother were all taken to the station. Her father and stepmother were let go a few hours after police determined that they weren't involved. The Alabama Journal noted that Viola wore a dark blue dress and looked exhausted and haggard. A neighbor told Birmingham News that Viola was begging them not to take her father and stepmother to jail. But he said, quote, They told her to sit down and tell them the truth about it. She was crying and wouldn't say anything. And she was about to be interrogated into the wee hours of the morning. Etowah County Sheriff Dewey Culvert told journalist Don Brown, Boy, I'm glad it's over. We've worked long and hard. He also said, I've sure lost a lot of sleep. Martin Hyatt did tell police the door had been shot in an accident the last hunting season. And despite other revealing comments he had made, journalist Don Brown wrote that he felt Martin knew that Viola had killed the brothers and was covering for her. So who was this enigmatic 30-year-old woman? Viola Virginia Hyatt was born on February 3, 1929, in Rabbittown. Her mother, Virgie, died in June 1934, when Viola was just five years old. 
The next year, Martin remarried a woman named Jessie Wheeler, and he openly said it was because he needed a mother to raise Viola. Jessie never had any children of her own, so Viola grew up an only child at the farm. She was very close to her father. People said she followed right behind him. She helped him in the fields and was pretty invaluable at the farm. The farm had been in the Hyatt family since before 1862. It had corn and cotton fields, plus a garden, pigs, and chickens. As a young girl on the farm, Viola learned how to butcher hogs. Later, investigators believed this could be where she learned how to cut things up. At seven, Viola's father taught her how to shoot. As an adult, she had daily target practice with her father. She was an excellent shot and often went hunting with her dad. Viola and her dad loved to attend all-day country singing sessions at church. They often drove to churches throughout North Alabama to attend the sessions. But that was really their only entertainment. They didn't socialize much at all. But neighbors were familiar with the family. According to their neighbors, Viola had a temper, but she was also thoughtful. She would do anything to help her neighbors out. Later, Martin Hyatt would say his daughter had a right smart temper. Neighbors also described Viola as friendly and jolly. She was a little different, but as nice as she could be, they said. She was considered smart, shy, soft-spoken, and well-mannered. Neighbors said Viola rarely associated with anyone except the four families that lived near the farm. Mrs. C.H. Reed, owner of Reed's Grocery, told the Birmingham News, People seem to like her. She never harmed anyone as far as I know. You won't find a soul to say anything against her or her family. Mrs. Reed also said that Viola loved to read. In the summertime, she'd sit in the swing and read all the time, any type of magazine. She added, she loved cats too. You'd never see her without some around. Mrs. Reed's daughter Barbara told the Aniston Star that Viola, quote, didn't bother anybody, but she didn't want anybody to bother her. Neighbors told the Aniston Star that Viola was never known to be in any serious trouble, although she had been somewhat rough and wild, and was known to have the peculiar habit of carrying a gun or knife with her wherever she went. One neighbor said she would walk around practically swaggering, with a shotgun resting on her shoulder. At 30 years old, she was around 5'7 or 8 and 175 pounds. She is often described as plain and plump or stocky. She had short black hair that she wore straight back. She may have been plain, but she did like clothes and often tried to look nice. After the murders, most people were shocked to hear that Viola was the killer, but then they were quick to admit that she had acted rather strangely on numerous occasions. According to her father, Viola went to school through the ninth grade, then she got mad at her teacher and quit. Viola had never been married, however she was dating someone. She and murder victim Lee Harper had been together for about five years. Martin Hyatt reported that Lee first started coming around the farm in 1952. He said he had known Lee for around seven years. Martin said, quote, I first met him when he brought the girl home from Aniston one day. He kept coming back, and I decided he was a nice fellow until I heard better. He went on, quote, One day Lee moved his trailer here without asking me. I guess the girl told him to put it there. The trailer was made of aluminum. It was tiny and homemade. The trailer was set 80 to 90 feet from the back of the house and was jacked up on concrete blocks. Notice how Martin Hyatt keeps calling his daughter the girl 
instead of by her name. Put that in your pocket. In 1958 or so, Lee's brother Emmett moved into the trailer. According to Martin, the brothers drank a lot and fought each other very often. Martin said, I couldn't stand Lee. He would get mad at you before you could say scat. He was all the time wanting to kill somebody. I've had to get up at midnight to quiet them down. One night they went to Anniston. Emmett came to the door and hollered for me to get up. He said, Lee's about to kill me. When I opened the door, there stood Emmett, blood just streaming down his face. Lee had stomped him in the face and dragged him along the highway. Viola told police that she and Lee had an understanding of an engagement and had planned to marry in the late summer of 1959. After the murders happened, when asked if Viola was going to marry Lee, Martin Hyatt told the Montgomery Advertiser, quote, No, I don't guess he and Viola were planning to get married. I'd heard they were sort of figuring on marrying. I don't know when, but she wouldn't marry him because he threatened to beat her up. Martin also said, quote, I told him I would kill him if he laid a hand on her, and I meant it too. He also said the brothers never paid rent for parking their trailer on the farm, and when a journalist asked him why, he said it was because Lee let them use their car every Sunday to go to the singings. And who were these brothers, both older men, who had apparently just moved themselves onto Martin's farm? Lee and Emmett Harper were born to parents Joe and Fanny. In total, there were six Harper boys. Lee was the oldest, and Emmett was the youngest. They grew up near Gant and attended an Aladusia Elementary School. Lee was born in 1906 and Emmett in 1914, so they were 55 and 48 when they were murdered. As teens, Lee and Emmett pulled their tenant farmer savings and bought a small store and frame house on Highway 29 in Clearview, Alabama. The store also served food as a small cafe. They lived in the frame house in the back of the store. The store sold fish bait and rented boats, but their business was not successful. After closing, the cafe and house were left vacant. However, the brothers would often vacation in the frame house. Both brothers served in World War II. Emmett was a survivor of the Bataan Death March of 1941. Emmett, who struggled to stay employed, was said to have talked about the war a lot. It wasn't pointed out in contemporary papers but it sounds like he might have been struggling with PTSD. After the war, the brothers worked various jobs around the state. Lee worked as a welder, and Emmett worked in construction when he was working. Lee and Emmett's sister-in-law, Mrs. Bob Harper, described them to the Montgomery Advertiser as having mild, congenial personalities. She said, They drank some, but outside of that, they were mighty good boys. Their second cousin, Mrs. Roy Law, said, they were always just as nice as could be. She said Lee loved children. He enjoyed being around them and spending his money on them, and they were crazy about him. Mrs. Law added that the brothers stuck pretty close together. Friends and family told the Andalusia Star News that the brothers were known to drink, but they were well known in the Andalusia area as being friendly. Owner of Owen's Cafe, Lily Owen, told the Birmingham News they were pretty good men, only they drank a good bit but they never caused anybody any trouble. White Plains residents didn't know much about the Harper brothers. According to the Aniston Star, most of the people questioned knew very little about them. They would see them pass by in their cars, frequently with Viola along, and the brothers were known to drink heavy and be rowdy at times. I'm going to pause now to hear a final word from one of today's sponsors. 
Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I sometimes suffer from depression and anxiety. I know that crushing feeling of freezing up when you have so much to do. Is there something interfering with your productivity? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for us. They will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. From your phone, laptop, or tablet, you can start communicating with your counselor in under 48 hours. And BetterHelp fits your comfort level, so you can text or chat if you would rather not talk on the phone or video. You can send a message to your BetterHelp counselor at any time, and anything you share is confidential. I have a crazy schedule, always on deadline and trying to catch up. I love the convenience of contacting my counselor whenever I not only need her, but I have time. BetterHelp has over 3,000 licensed therapists in all 50 states treating depression, anxiety, stress, trauma, grief, and other issues that so many of us suffer from. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com southern. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com southern. At first, Viola told police she took the brothers to the bus station at Oxford the night before the first torso was found. She said the brothers were traveling to their place in Clearview. Then she decided to point the finger at someone else, her former boyfriend, Dewey Carroll. Viola said she saw two bodies beside his car and heard him drive away. Dewey was arrested. After several hours of questioning, he was released, and Viola changed her story and said Dewey wasn't really involved. After being interrogated for almost six hours, Viola finally said, I have something to show you, at around 2.30 a.m. She then took the detectives on a three-hour road trip through Calhoun, Etowah, and St. Clair counties. She confessed to the crime at the station and elaborated more as she drove along with the investigators. Viola said on the evening of the 27th, she went to Lee and Emmett's trailer and used her dad's 12-gauge shotgun to shoot both men in the face. She said she shot Lee first as he sat in the trailer beside the door. As Emmett bent over the body of Lee, Viola said she shot him in the side of the face. She took most of their clothes off, dragged the bodies to the front of the trailer, then cut off their arms and legs with a double-sided axe. She put the body parts in a homemade wheelbarrow, then wheeled them to Lee's car, a 1955 Chevrolet sedan. She then threw the arms and legs in the back seat of the car, and she put the torsos in the trunk. After the body parts were all loaded up, Viola said she drove through the Talladega National Forest in Cleburne County. She tossed limbs out the window as she drove along. Then she drove to Gadsden via U.S. Highway 11, which used to be called the Whiskey Trail because of the bootleggers. And then she stopped at the house in Etowah County and threw one of the torsos next to the chimney. Then she drove toward Whitney Junction and looked for another house to dump the second torso. Mr. X, who was identified as Emmett Harper, was found around 38 miles from the Hyatt farm. Mr. Y, Lee Harper, was around 49 miles away. Unlike what authorities had believed, Viola said she was unfamiliar with the areas where she left the torsos and said she didn't even know the houses were vacant. Investigators were able to recover half of the limbs. Two legs were found around 12 feet apart beside the Ford Valley Road in Etowah County. 
Two arms were found around a mile apart on Young's Chapel Road, around 10 miles west of Piedmont. Two legs and two arms were still missing. Viola had said the legs were thrown over the Bells Mill Bridge in the Tallapoosa River in Cleburne County, and police didn't think they'd ever recover them. They also didn't think they'd find the other arms, which were dumped at a roadside pullover on Sadler's Mountain, about five miles west of Piedmont. After taking police to the places where she dumped the body parts, they all headed back to the Hyatt Farm, where Viola supposedly reenacted the murders. Viola's father and stepmother again sat on the porch. She was seen speaking to them briefly. According to the Birmingham News, there was no embrace or emotion seen. Neither parent rose to meet the woman. Then they went inside. After a while, Viola went to the chicken yard and showed officers something in the dirt. Next, they went to the trailer. Then she went to show them the wheelbarrow and then to a cornfield where she had buried the axe. Police examined Lee's car, which Viola had been driving since the murders. According to the Birmingham News, police said the back seat was caked with dried blood. The seat appeared to have been drenched thoroughly with blood. And a blood-stained hat was still on the front seat. Blood was found on several pieces of furniture in the trailer. A rug pad was soaked with blood. There was also evidence that someone had tried to clean the blood off the trailer steps. Chief State Investigator W.L. Allen told the Birmingham News that Viola probably worked a good part of a week cleaning up the evidence, which makes you wonder why she hadn't either hid the car or cleaned it up first. Maybe she was just enjoying having it all to herself. When Viola was done showing everything, she went inside and changed. She came back outside wearing a dress and her best white shoes. She'd also combed her hair. Viola infamously posed for pictures, giving an enigmatic smile. Later, she would have that same smile when reporters took photos of her going into the courthouse. As she was let out, she told her neighbor, Mr. Cobb, to look after her folks. On the ride to jail, when asked how she felt, Viola said she felt better after telling the police what happened, but she refused to give a motive until she had had a nap. Sheriff Roy Sneed told the Op News that while Viola rode around telling police where she dumped body parts, she was cool as a cucumber on a cool morning. He said the only time she broke down and cried was when she showed officers the axe she used to dismember the brothers. After a nap, as promised, Viola gave police four motives, but she refused to elaborate further. First, she said the brothers had sexually abused her. Then she said they drank too much and were rude to her father. She finally said she and Lee had gotten into an argument over the car. Journalist Dallin Brown said Lee had the only car on the farm. He taught Viola how to drive and gave her a set of keys. She pretty much had the run of the car when she needed it. But that was it. She refused to say anything else in her own defense. After news of Viola's arrest was reported, hundreds of people drove to the Hyatt farm and parked their cars on the road. They gathered in the front, side, and backyards. All these people, hanging around in the sweltering Alabama heat. The locals and looky-loos could not get enough. At one point, police counted as many as 20 cars passing the house per minute. At night, the heat somehow became more oppressive and humid. Police continued to search the farm in order to corroborate Viola's story. According to Sheriff Roy Sneed, Viola was continuing to dispose of evidence almost up until the moment she was arrested. 
She had driven around for miles, also scattering the brothers' possessions. And she burned their clothing and identification on the farm before her arrest. On July 21st, it was announced that a leg was found floating in the Tallapoosa River. Another leg and two arms were still missing. To my knowledge, they were never found. On July 22nd, Lee and Emmett Harper were laid to rest near their former home in Andalusia. They were buried next to their parents. Police found out that Viola had used her neighbor's phone on July 13th and 14th. She had called Lee's supervisor and asked for Lee to call her when he returned from his vacation. She then called two other times, asking for Lee's two-week vacation to be extended. Police spoke to some neighbors. The couple that lived across the farm from the Hyatt farm, Mr. and Mrs. Alton Hall, said that around midnight on June 27th, they woke up to at least eight shotgun blasts, and they thought their lives were in danger. Following the shots was a series of screams and shouts, and someone screamed, No, no, no. Then another shot rang out, and it was quiet. Then several more shots came. Alton checked the front yard, but didn't see anything, so he assumed they had come from the Hyatt farm. And then Alton didn't check the noise because the Harper brothers were often drunk and fussing, and Viola was often practicing with her shotgun, however not usually that late. Around an hour later, Alton heard a car leave the Hyatt farm. He later saw Viola arrive home around 8.30 a.m. Alton was going to talk to the brothers about the shotgun blasts, but then Viola told him she'd taken them to the bus station for their annual vacation. Many newspapers questioned how a woman could have dragged the two bodies out of the trailer, hacked them up, then lifted the pieces. But authorities said that while they initially thought one person couldn't have done the job, they did believe Viola acted alone. At around five foot eight, 175 pounds, in photos she does look very stocky, and she is often described as big, even imposing. Also, she worked on a farm her entire life. That kind of work isn't for sissies. She would have been as strong as many men, butchering hogs, splitting wood, lifting and carrying no telling how much weight on a daily basis. But not all officials believed Viola acted alone. State Public Safety Director Floyd Mann said, quote, I wouldn't be at all surprised if she had some help. And there was plenty of whispering about Martin Hyatt, despite his advanced age. On August 13th, a grand jury returned two indictments for first-degree murder. While awaiting trial in jail, Viola received very few guests, just her father, a cousin, two ministers, and her attorney. She spent most of her time alone reading. Sheriff Royce Need told the Montgomery Advertiser, quote, She hasn't given us a bit of trouble. She's been unusually quiet. While in jail, Viola refused to speak any further with the police or her court-appointed attorneys. This led to her sanity being questioned. On September 18th, a hearing was held. Her arraignment was supposed to be the next day. Viola's attorneys told the judge that she appeared to be insane, that she didn't understand the nature of the charges against her, and could not assist in her own defense. The judge sent Viola to Bryce Hospital in Tuscaloosa for observation and, quote, until she is restored to her right mind. Five months later, on February 10, 1960, Viola was deemed sane and competent by her doctors. She was transferred back to jail that day. Once she was back in jail, Viola still refused to talk to her attorneys. On March 4th, Viola's attorneys entered pleas of not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. On March 14th, Viola's trial for the murder of Lee Harper began. 
The courtroom was filled to the rafters. Others were turned away and had to stand outside in the halls. An hour into the trial, the judge called a recess. At 11.35 a.m., he brought the jury back into the courtroom and told them that an agreement had been made between the prosecution and defense. Viola would be pleading guilty, and she would be sentenced to life in prison. Reporters and the public were extremely disappointed that there was no trial. They wanted the gruesome details heard in court, and everyone wanted her motive. On March 17th, Viola Virginia Hyatt was formally sentenced to life in prison. Viola did not speak unless it was to give answers to the judge, like what's your name, age, etc. Under Alabama law, Viola would be eligible for parole in just 10 years. Following her sentencing, Viola's father told the Birmingham News, quote, I'm going to get her out of there if I live. Did you see that cross around her neck? I carried it to her this morning, and her watch too. I thought Viola looked fine after I dressed her up. Martin added, me and that girl was real close. Following her sentencing, Viola's defense attorneys told the Andalusia Star News, quote, she never would tell us exactly what happened. They said when they asked Viola about the brothers sexually assaulting her, she simply replied, it is worse than that and refused to say anything more. On March 18th, Viola was sent to Tutwiler State Prison in Watomka. She worked in the prison's garment factory, operating a sewing machine. While in prison, she was allowed to garden, and she had a pet. The prison supervisor gave interviews to the press, praising Viola as a pleasant and cooperative prisoner. Her only visitor was her cousin Luther, as her father had become ill immediately after she went to prison. In July of 1960, Viola was allowed to visit her father in an Aniston hospital after he had undergone surgery. On May 3, 1961, Viola's 76-year-old father passed away in his sleep at the farmhouse. Viola was allowed to attend his May 4th funeral. Her stepmother, Jessie, died six days before Viola was paroled. She had never visited her stepdaughter in prison, nor did she grant interviews. After serving 10 years, Viola applied for parole. On April 14, 1970, the three-person parole board voted 3-0 to zero to let her out. Viola had been the perfect inmate. She never caused problems, always did what she was told, and always followed the rules. After she was released, Viola moved in with an aunt and uncle in Jacksonville, Alabama. She did not work and lived on a fixed income. She didn't drive and she didn't shop much. She was said to have saved all her coins in jars. She also developed a serious leg condition, which eventually left her using a walker. From 1990 until her death, Viola lived in a Jacksonville mobile home park called Tuckaway Village. Residents of the park lovingly referred to Viola as the mayor of Tuckaway Village because she knew everything that happened in the park. Viola spent most of her time reading her Bible on the front porch and evidently spying on her neighbors. Viola Virginia Hyatt lived the rest of her life very quietly. She refused all interviews. No one in her family spoke to the press either, although now there are plenty of people online claiming to be distantly related to her, and they have a lot to say. On June 12, 2000, Viola passed away in the hospital at 71 years old. Her funeral was private, so the media couldn't show up. She really never did give a motive for the murders. And there are all kinds of conspiracy theories if you dig far enough online. People who claim to be related to her say she was sexually abused by her father. 
and that she had a secret baby who was fed to the hogs on the Hyatt farm. Obviously, I'm not saying they are right. There's absolutely no proof. And the part about the hogs is particularly outlandish. It's like some spooky family lore passed down through the years. But I mentioned how her father always referred to her as the girl. It wasn't uncommon for men and women of his generation to be more formal, calling people mother and father, and even sister and brother. But there is something creepy about the way Martin Hyatt always called his daughter the girl instead of by her name. It's almost dehumanizing to me. Viola called her father daddy and seemed almost unnaturally attached to him. There's just something off to me about their relationship. Viola was said to be sort of backwoods. She carried a shotgun or a knife with her everywhere. Maybe she did just get angry and shoot Lee and Emmett. Her one comment about them being rude to her father sticks out. And maybe the brothers were abusive to Viola, sexually or otherwise. She was said to wait on them, cooking and cleaning, just like she did for her father. Maybe she had finally had enough of their shit. They were known to be drinkers who could cause trouble by their neighbors, even if their family said nice things about them. But even if she did just snap, taking an axe and cutting up the bodies is what makes this story so gruesome and so famous. I'm not sure her 74-year-old father could have helped her, but I do think he probably knew. It actually was a somewhat smart plan. How else could she move the bodies by herself? She was just caught before she could finish cleaning up the farm. We will never really know why she murdered Lee and Emmett, and whether or not Viola's father abused her. The Alabama axe murderess would never tell. As Margaret Atwood wrote, the best way of keeping a secret is to pretend there isn't one. Southern Fried True Crime is written, hosted, and produced by me, Erica Kelly. Today's episode was researched by Haley Gray. Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio, and the original graphic art is by Coley Horner. Thank you to Heather Blackman for suggesting today's case. Don't forget to come to our new Facebook group. Search for Southern Fried True Crime Fans Discussion Group. We still worship our patron saint, Dolly Parton, share fun memes and delicious recipes. Our group is a safe and fun corner of Facebook, and by God, we mean it when we say no shit asses allowed. It's not just a motto, it's how we run the group, and we will boot your ass if you can't be polite. Please submit case suggestions to southernfriedtruecrime at gmail.com. I do not accept suggestions on social media, and I do not accept direct messages or private messages. And I apologize if I am unable to answer your email. I get dozens of suggestions a week, and it takes time to go through and check out each case. But I promise you, I read them. I will definitely contact you if I plan to use the case you submit to see if you would like to be credited on the episode. And thank you all so much for sending in these suggestions. I truly get my most interesting cases from listener suggestions, so keep them coming. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I am also on most large platforms like iHeart, Stitcher, and Spotify, as well as Stitcher Premium, where you can listen ad-free. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care.